Amen, amen, amen. Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you. You are our King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Father, for listening ears, open minds, and receptive hearts this morning. Open our eyes to the truth of who you are, Father, and who we are to you. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's make our confession. This is our year of jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost in power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like for you to turn your Bibles with me this morning. Uh, two different openings, Isaiah chapter 41 and Isaiah chapter 54. I want to talk to you this morning on righteousness. And these are three, well, I call them my three righteousness scriptures. Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Chapter 54, verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I want you to back up with me to verse 14 again, Isaiah 54, verse 14. Notice it says, in righteousness thou shalt be established. There are benefits that the Bible speaks to concerning the fact that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and what that means. It talks about being free from oppression. It talks about being free from the work of the enemy. It talks about being sustained all through righteousness because we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now this word established in Isaiah 54 verse 14, it, it means to stand upright it's, it's a position where it speaks of being established in righteousness God stands us upright and the implication is he puts us in a high place that, that point or that uh, position of being established in righteousness is the result of an act now this verse uh, or this uh, word established is used 74 times in the scripture and it speaks of the action that God takes to create something. For example, it says, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 9, verse 17, that the rainbow is established as a sign of the covenant that God made with Noah. You remember in uh, Genesis chapter 41 where it tells us about Joseph who interprets Pharaoh's dreams. David tells Pharaoh that the dream was twice or he had two different dreams because it was established by God. It tells us that God established his covenant with Israel. It tells us that God established Samuel as the prophet and established David as the king of Israel. It tells us that the Abraham, the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was established by God himself. Now, the Bible says in righteousness we shall be established. We shall stand upright. We shall be high, set on high, by the power of God. And this righteousness is something that 
was originally ordained and has forever been established by God as a result of faith in God's word. The first time the word righteousness is used in the scripture is Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. God has shown Abraham, or points to the stars in the sky and asked Abraham how many there are. And he said that he didn't know, but God identified that he would make the seed of Abraham like the stars of the sky. And it tells us that Abraham believed God. It wasn't a result of obedience. It wasn't a result of keeping the law. The law wasn't yet come and wouldn't come for another 400 years or more than 400 years. But it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now when Israel comes along, the children of Israel are directed by God to leave Egypt and God delivers them with a mighty hand. It tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he commanded us. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Israel, as Abraham's descendants, are established by the keeping of the law, the keeping of God's word. But I want to show you who these people are. I want to show you what the nation of Israel is. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, Perhaps I should say again before we read much further, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell message to the children of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt as God parted the Red Sea before them and they went across on dry land. He leads them to Mount Sinai where God gives him the Ten Commandments. He leads them through the wilderness after they refuse to believe God's promise of the promised land being theirs. And so Moses is saying, before Moses goes off the scene, Moses is identifying to Israel the expectation that God has for them. So I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in possession go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which giveth over before thee as a consuming fire he shall destroy them and he shall bring them down before thy face so thou shalt drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said unto thee speak not in thine heart after that the Lord thy God has cast them out from before thee saying for my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land well if it wasn't their righteousness what was it but for the wickedness of these nations the Lord does drive them out before thee not for thy righteousness or for the uprightness of thine heart dost thou go to possess the land but for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God does drive them out before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt, until you came unto this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant which the Lord made with you, 
Then I abode in the mount forty days and forty nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake unto you in the mountain out of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They quickly turned aside out of the way which I have commanded them, and they have made a molten image. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mount, and the mountain burned with fire. And the two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked and beheld, you had sinned against the Lord your God, and had made you a molten calf. You had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands and break them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which you sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him, and I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. And I took your sin, the calf which you had made, and burned it with fire and stamped it, and grounded it, it very small, even till it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mount. And it then the next thing, verse 22, it mentions three places where they provoked the Lord to wrath. There's no way I can pronounce those, so I'm going to skip over it. Likewise, when the Lord sent you up from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you believed him not, nor hearkened ye to his voice. Notice verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days and forty nights, as I fell down at the first, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed therefore unto the Lord, and said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people, and thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember thy servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look not unto the stubbornness of this people, nor to their wickedness, nor to their sin. Lest the land which thou brought us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he hated them, he hath brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and by thy stretched out arm. Moses doesn't pull any punches. He establishes by the word of the Lord the history of the rebellion of the people of Israel. Now, folks, these are the people God's going to help. These are the ones that he's going to empower to take possession of the promised land. Righteousness is a tough concept for us to take hold of. And the reason for that, I think, is that we know that we are still subject to sin. And so the idea of being made righteous becomes a playground for the enemy to tempt us and to lie to us. And the devil will lie to us and say things like, if you were righteous, you wouldn't be sinning the way that you do. If you were righteous like the Bible talks about, you wouldn't be su subject to sin 
and so easily drawn off from the path that God commands us to walk. Paul fell into this same thing. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7 that Paul laments the fact that he can't control his body. He says, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want. Now he's talking about following God and keeping his commandment, walking in love. But he finally comes to the place where he realizes that it's not by his works or the works of any man, but it's a faith proposition. He speaks of the righteousness that is of faith, looks to the work, the finished work of Jesus. And so in Romans chapter 7, when he tells of his dilemma and his inability to control his flesh the way that he wants to and the way that he knows that he should, he comes to the realization that there's only one thing that makes man righteous, and that is faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He ends chapter 7 with the question, who shall deliver me from the body of this death, from his sinful flesh, in other words? And then in Romans chapter 8, he gives the answer, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. It's the finished work of Jesus that brings about the righteousness that God sent Jesus to the cross to obtain. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth in the second letter that we have record of, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, speaking of God, has made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, it says you were made the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't say that you took on righteousness for yourself. It's talking about a change of nature. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their nature was changed. They became one with their father, the devil, because of their willingness to follow him and to disobey God. And that change in nature plagues mankind, all of mankind, because man becomes powerless to regain his right standing with God. Now, when the Bible talks about being established in righteousness, one of the things about righteousness that you need to be aware of is that you can't grow in it. Nowhere does the Bible say we grow in righteousness. It tells us we can grow in love. It tells us we can grow in faith. But nowhere does it say we can grow in righteousness. And that's because righteousness is a position, not an act. We might be able to do good works, but those good works can't bring us into the changed nature of being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, since it's so easy for us to fall into that trap, that circular trap of trying to justify ourselves unsuccessfully and then recognizing 
that we have no power or strength in ourselves to stand in righteousness or to walk in righteousness. I think one thing that's helped me more than maybe anything else, instead of looking at forgiveness of sins, which always brings us to the place where we are defeated, I look at righteousness like forgiveness of the debt. Now, you know as well as I do that when we find ourselves in debt and we seek ways to get out, there are occasions where the companies that we owe a debt to can forgive that debt and it simply wipes it out. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on how good we look. It's not based on anything except the actions of the companies that we have debt with. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it created a debt for mankind that he couldn't pay. But by the blood of Jesus, that debt was paid. It was wiped out. Now, if your debt is wiped out, you don't spend time worrying about who you are or what you're doing. You have the ability to get back in debt if you wanted to. But nothing changes the fact that that debt is erased. Your debt has been erased by the blood of Jesus. Now the Bible tells us that once we come into that new creation reality of becoming one with the family of God, It tells us what to do from that point forward. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the blood of Jesus wipes our debt out. It creates a condition that we stand before God without sin without wrongdoing and then any sin we commit from that point forward is covered by 1 John 1 9 the church has a has a, a bad habit of identifying that the way to God is to confess our sin but folks there would be no way for you to remember every sin you committed to confess but when we accept the blood of Jesus as the cancellation of our debt which was caused by Adam's sin once that sin is canceled then we start over with a clean slate now if we don't keep the slate clean and if we fall into diverse temptations then we're able to identify what's wrongdoing or what step out of love, what disobedience to God's word we have committed and we can take care of our sins one by one. Do you remember the story I think it's in John chapter 9. Let me see if I can find it real quick. John chapter 9, verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. 
And the disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am in the light of the world. Now, I want you to see, folks, the way that this is separated into chapter and verse leaves a wrong impression about God and Jesus' work concerning sickness sometimes. The disciples knew something, and they were right. Sickness is the result of sin. Their question is, whose sin caused the, the man to be born blind? Jesus answers and said, neither was it this man nor his parents. He didn't say sin wasn't the cause. But he says it wasn't the man's sin or his parents' sin that caused this situation or condition of blindness. Well, if it wasn't his parents or his, the individual, whose sin was it? It was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve opened the door to sickness and disease to enter this realm, this world. There was no sickness or disease or anything that could hurt mankind present in God's creative works. When he rests on the seventh day, there's no sickness in the earth. There's nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. God made the earth subject to himself and subject to his law. And therefore, sickness was nowhere to be found. The Bible also tells us, for example, in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost in power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. It tells us that everybody that Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. That's going to include this man here in chapter 9 of John. So it tells us in Acts 10.38 that this man, along with every other person that was healed in Jesus' ministry, was oppressed of the devil. So when Jesus says, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, the sin that caused this man to be born blind had to have been the work of the devil, not the work of God. And Jesus says, that since neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Well, what work did he do? Whatever his work was, he says it was the work of the Father. Well, let's pick up the, the story in verse 6. When he had thus then spoken... He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way therefore and washed, and came seeing. The neighbors therefore and the wit and the, they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is this not he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he, and others said, He's like him. But he said, No, that's me. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received the sight. Well, clearly the works that Jesus did were works of healing. Clearly the works that Jesus said that he's doing of the Father was a work of healing and not a work of making the man sick. Now where the Bible says, Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but I must work the works of him that sent me. 
if God has made this man sick or blind, then Jesus is working against the will of the Father when he heals him. So it's impossible to interpret this scripture in any form whatsoever to think that God made the man blind so Jesus would have somebody to heal when he came along. This blindness was of the devil. And Jesus, without stopping to pray, to get any information or any direction on what to do, knew immediately that since he was sent to the earth to do the works of the Father, he knew that this man was eligible for healing from his blindness. Now I bring this up because of the tendency that we have, the human nature that we have to question the righteousness that the Bible says that we've been made, the change of nature that took place when we accepted the blood of Jesus as our substitute. And the tendency that we have to question our righteousness or our position of righteousness because of the wrongdoing that we are still subject to. For God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now folks, if we can't grow in righteousness, then how are we going to be established in it? We can't grow in righteousness, but we can grow in a knowledge of it. We might not be able to grow and develop in righteousness in the same way that we can grow and develop in faith or grow and develop in love, the love of God. But we, through faith, can increase our knowledge of righteousness and who we've been made by the blood of Jesus. We can take hold by faith and understand greater and grow in, in greater knowledge about how the righteousness of God works. The Bible tells us that the first thing that takes place when Jesus comes for the church in the rapture is that our bodies are changed. In other words, these sinful bodies are these bodies with the experience of sin are taken away from us and we receive redeemed bodies in an instant of time. Now folks, let me ask you a question. Imagine that you're going up in the rapture and your body changes. You receive a redeemed body. What does that do to the real you on the inside? Does it change you? Other than physically, what happens to the real you? What happens to the eternal you? Is anything changed? Do you automatically receive a knowledge of righteousness that you didn't have before? We have no way to identify that. We have no way to claim that because there's no scripture that tells us. The scripture tells us the only thing that changes for us is our bodies Sinful flesh is changed to redeemed flesh. But the real you is the same. So why don't we live according to the real you? The man on the inside that's made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why don't we not just accept here and now 
that we are the same as who we will be in the rapture. Now, folks, I can't wait to receive a redeemed body. But I think all of us are going to be surprised at how the change takes place. I think most of the church is going to expect for something to change on this grand scale that they'll be able to recognize and then they can accept that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. But folks, the righteousness of God comes by the blood of Jesus, not by the rapture. If God needs for us to have redeemed bodies in order for us to become righteous, then the Bible lied to us. The Bible says we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus now. The Bible tells us that all things are possible to us now. All things are possible to him that believes. It seems opposite of what it should be in our thinking to fail to accept that you'll never be more righteous than you are right now. You'll never be more righteous by anything that happens in this life. You'll never be more righteous by anything that happens in the rapture. When Paul comes to realize that the weakness of his body, the weakness of his flesh is going to be an ongoing battle, he's going to struggle with his flesh for all of his days here on the earth. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus offered himself and shed his blood for the very reason that the Bible identifies that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's why Jesus was able to tell his disciples, the works that I do show you do also, and even greater works show you do because I go unto my Father. He doesn't say, the works that I do show you be able to do also as soon as you get your redeemed body. There's nothing about our flesh that can hinder us if we accept the teaching of the Scripture that we are righteous in the sight of God. For God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think in heaven there's going to be a lot of weeping, a lot of sorrow, when we, saw, when we see the things that we could have done in the name of Jesus, but we failed to do it because of what we thought about ourselves and whether or not we thought we were worthy of righteousness. In righteousness thou shalt be established. In righteousness thou shalt stand tall. Through the work of God establishing us as children of the Most High God. You're righteous now. You are completely righteous now. 
You are absolutely righteous now. Accepting that is going to be, will bring one of the greatest victories of your Christian walk. Because it becomes the end of the devil's rule over you. It brings about the end of the devil's putting a halt to the works of God working through working in you and through you. If God needs the rapture to complete the work that Jesus brought about on the cross, then Jesus' work was not a finished work. Again, Jesus said to his disciples, the works that I do shall you do also. And greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. What does he mean when he says because I go unto my Father? Because I'm taking my blood as a substitute for your debt. To forgive your debt once and for all. A one-time payment that satisfies the claim of justice. Folks, the Bible tells us that the disciples understood a little bit of this because they were able to do the works of Jesus here on the earth before Jesus even went to the cross. Men dominated by the sin nature. Men that were of their father, the devil, as Jesus said of the Pharisees. Men that were dominated by the sin nature that came on mankind as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience in the Garden of Eden. There's no way that we could call them anything other than sinners. Not just righteous men that participate in sin. That sin governed or governed by the sin nature. Who simply chose to follow Jesus and to accept him as their Lord and Savior. They made that determination within themselves. But it could not become a reality until Jesus went to the cross. Yet they were able to do the works of Jesus in great degree. And Jesus commissioned them to do it. Now if he needed a righteous group to do the works that God sent him to do then how could he have delegated the power that was in his name not power as the risen savior but power that came about as the anointing of God came upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Let's start in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
Now, who's the righteous man that he's talking about? Well, the example he gives us is Elijah. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. The story he's talking about is that Elijah went to King Ahab, who was probably the most wicked and evil king of all the kings of Egypt, uh, of Israel. And so he said that it wasn't going to rain until he said so. Three and a half years go by. And he appears to Ahab and calls for a contest. And the context, contest is between the prophets of Baal. There were 450 of them against Elijah. And he's proposed to Ahab that they both put an, uh, a sacrifice or an offering, burn offering on the, the altar and call for either Baal or God to answer and the one that answers by fire then he's, he's God and everybody will serve him so the prophets of Baal start and they pray they dance they do all kinds of things jumping up and down on the altar it says they wind up cutting themselves with stone as a last resort Elijah's been mocking them the whole time And finally, after all these things take place, Elijah says, okay, you've had your chance. Now step back. He repairs the altar from where they've been jumping up and down on it. He commands a trench to be dug around the altar. And then he tells them to fill that trench up with water. Now it's been three and a half years since there's been any rain, so water's a precious commodity. So he soaks down the altar, the sacrifice, the water's in the trench, and Elijah simply prays a simple prayer. He says, Lord, show that you're God and I'm your servant. Fire falls from heaven, vaporizes the sacrifice, vaporizes the rocks that the altar is made out of, it vaporizes the water that's in the trench. And Elijah says, God is God. Serve him. He then takes a sword and kills all 450 prophets of Baal. And Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, hears of what's taking place. And she says, so shall it be come this time tomorrow that I'll take the head of Elijah off. Elijah hears this and he runs up into the mountains. When he gets there, after having prevailed in this great contest, he sits down and starts complaining to God that he's the only one that's left. He's complaining because Queen Jezebel has threatened his life. And then he says to God, just let me die. Well, he didn't really want to die. If he had, he could have stayed where he was and Jezebel could have taken care of that. And God manifests himself to him and prepares him to put the mantle or the anointing that he has on Elisha to take his place. Now, folks, this is the guy that James identifies as the righteous man. 
The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then tells us the story of Elijah. Elijah not only sinned, but Elijah was subject to the feelings that we all have and the discouragements that come to all of us. And that's the one that he says God recognizes as a righteous man. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And Elisha was this righteous man, although he was subject to the same passions, feelings, emotions that we all are. But God still heard his prayer. He heard his prayer, and the rain came, just as Elijah said, Elijah said would be. And it was a sign to the people of Israel that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. Folks, it's James or Paul or any of the New Testament authors were writing this thing, this letter today, they would have the same opportunity to identify any of us as righteous. In fact, Elijah's righteousness was just counted to him. He wasn't even made righteous because he was before Jesus and before the sacrifice of Jesus' blood paid, forgive, forgave and paid the debt that was owed of all mankind. But he could plug your name in there, maybe not for the, the works or the great contest that Elijah had secured But in every way, you and I are a greater example of righteousness than Elijah was. When I think of the things that the Old Testament prophets and others identified by the scriptures, the works that they did with the help of God, it causes me to recognize that somewhere along the way they were able to, to leap that hurdle, that obstacle that our mind creates the thoughts and the temptations of the devil that hold us back. Folks, God created us in such a way that we cannot be held back if we accept the teaching of the Scripture. Our debt has been paid. And God sees us in the substitutionary work of Jesus. Jesus paying the price with his blood would be the same as us paying the price with our own blood except Jesus was a worthy sacrifice his blood was worthy to offer as a sacrifice because he had never sinned we could not have paid the same price and canceled out our own debt in anything that approximates what Jesus did. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That righteousness affords you 
certain privileges. It affords you health, prosperity, fellowship with God. It affords you protection against the oppression of the devil. It affords you a place of right standing with God that can never be changed. Never be changed. Folks, Jesus knew these things. Jesus knew what he was going to the cross for. He agonized and sweat great drops of blood, the Bible says, when he was facing being separated from his father. But that separation from God was the only thing that would cancel the debt that mankind owed. But Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was going into. He knew the, the price and the punishment that would be inflicted upon him, not just by the Roman soldiers, but the wrath of God itself. He was subject to the Roman soldiers in his physical death, in the beatings that he took, that brought about healing for mankind. The hanging on the cross and the shame that was associated with dying as a sinner. And he knew probably more than anybody could the punishment that would be inflicted upon him in the three days and nights between his physical death and his resurrection. In that lowest part of hell that he went to because he died as a sinner, not as a righteous man. Only he could have known what the punishment would be. Only he could have known the desolation as the waves, the breakers of God's wrath against sin was poured out on him. But he knew what the results would be. And the Bible says he endured the shame of the cross for the great reward. The reward that you and I could be once and for all made righteous and stand before God. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a new species of being. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. God's plan of righteousness was purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. Thank God for his righteousness. That's what these elements represent, folks. It represents the price that Jesus paid so that your debt and mine could be canceled out. Gentlemen, if you're ready, we'll wait upon the people.
Paul wrote to the church, For I have received of the Lord that which I also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we take this bread and we recognize the price that Jesus paid in his flesh so that we might walk in divine health. The word says that by his stripes we are healed. We receive this bread now and healing for our physical bodies in Jesus' name. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we take this cup, which represents the blood of Jesus. It's by this cup that we are made righteous. 
thank you, Father, for all the benefits that we enjoy being part of your family. Let's receive the cup. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand together. We'll make our confession again before we go. Got it back there? Can you see it? Okay. This is our year of Jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a great day.